0: heard of the Forbes magazine? Okay, it's a magazine uh, that gets published in America, mainly about rich people and stuff, but every year they, for the last 10 years, they've put out a list of the most powerful people in the world, and you're probably not going to be too surprised by who's on this list. Here's the top four, yep, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, Donald Trump, the president of America. Xi Jinping, the president of China, and Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, they are, according to this list, the most powerful people in the world. and And you'll probably recognise their names, you recognise their faces. I mean, they are very frequently in our news media, uh, because these people have power. You know, they have political power. They can make rules. They ma- they can make regulations. But they also have military power. They Literally control the uh, the most powerful armies in the world, and they also have economic influence. I mean, that affects trade, international relations, stock markets. When they say something, when they put out a tweet, that uh, you know sends shockwaves through the stock markets, and they just literally have an ability to direct global events and influence the behaviour of people on a mass scale. They have they have power. And a long time ago, uh, about 125 years ago, a guy called Robert Ingersoll, he was an American lawyer and a politician and an agnostic, he said this Nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Notice he says nothing about women. Obviously, they can handle it all. (laughs) But if you look through history, you'll see there's a lot of men and some women who have abused the power that they've been given. They were tempted, they were tarnished, they craved wealth, they craved status, and their corruption ultimately caused huge suffering for millions and millions of people. And you will look at some of those names and some of those faces, and you might breathe a sigh of relief and think, whew, thankfully, that high-level corruption, it's just a long way away from New Zealand. And, you know, you'd probably be be pretty close to being right. So according to a a recent report by a group called Transparency Transparency International, New Zealand is the most least corrupt country in the world. And I, I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm pretty thankful actually. I mean, sure there's things that aren't perfect, but there's one thing that I do appreciate about our country is that there are some issues that we have where there is still a sense of right and wrong. People. In our country still want justice and fairness for mostly everybody. And I think that's why we get really disturbed when we see someone in power, someone in authority, someone with influence, and they help themselves rather than help others. And you know, if you've been reading the headlines in the last few days, you'll know that there's been uh, a lot of that by several politicians. They have abused their power. They have helped themselves. Well, it's not just, it's not just politicians. Business leaders do it. Celebrities do it. Professional athletes, uh, teachers, coaches, priests, pastors, police, you know, all those sorts of groups of people can abuse their power. And so whenever we see someone abusing that power, in New Zealand we get justifiably mad. But I think we're also inspired by people who use their authority for good? Who use their power to help people? And that's why our favourite stories are about men and women who have chosen to help others rather than help themselves. You know, they've uh, maybe it's maybe it's a mentor, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's someone you know—a coach, a parent, a teacher. Maybe it's someone who has used their position and their privilege to bring benefits to other people. So I've got a theory about all of this, and I don't don't know if it's true or not, but my theory is this, that we never really know which way we're going to turn, which lever we're going to pull, which button we're going to push until we are given power. And maybe it's when you get the manager's office. Maybe it's when you get the director's chair. Maybe it's when you get the supervisor's vest or the captain's badge or the keys or the portfolio or the credit card or the cash book or whatever it is. In that moment, when you are given power, you have to decide if you will help others or help yourself. So, for the next six weeks, we're going to be uh, the, the ABC teaching team's going to be introducing us to a guy called David. He was one of the most famous people in ancient history. So the Christian Bible is the primary source of information on David's life, but there's some other archaeological evidence which points to uh, who he was. Now, just to kind of give you a, a picture of how important he was as a historical figure, so in the Old Testament, we read that David was a very prominent character. Think about Abraham, one of the founding fathers of the Jewish people. Abraham's life story is contained in 14 chapters. Or maybe his grandson Jacob, a significant person in the history of the Christian faith. His life story is contained in 11 chapters. Or maybe even the prophet Elijah. His life story is contained in 10 chapters. But David has 66 chapters in the Bible dedicated to his life. And there's over another 50 references to him in the New Testament. He is a very significant person in Christian history. And so the next few weeks, we're going to explore how his life and his legacy still speaks to us today. I you may already know something about him. I mean, he's a famous guy. You probably know that he was a humble shepherd boy who killed a giant. He was also a skilled musician, an inspired poet, a fierce warrior, a courageous leader, an astute statesman, and ultimately a great king. I suppose for me, the most fascinating aspect of his character is that David is described as being a man after God's own heart. And so if you've read the Bible, you might find a little bit about him. If you do have one with you, I'd encourage you to flip to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to read a little bit about his story. I'm just going to give you a real kind of quick flyover this morning. So let me set the scene. David's life is around about 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. And the two kind of prominent people in the story before we get to meet David is a guy called Samuel, he's a prophet, and another guy called King Saul, who was the king of Israel. And so at this time when we pick up the story, Saul has chosen to reject God's guidance during his kingship. And so God has uh, given Samuel a secret mission to go and appoint the next king. Now, do you know why that mission is secret? Because there's already a king. <laughs> right, okay. Just sort of clear that up. Okay, so Samuel's on a mission to appoint the next king, even though there's already a king in power. And so Samuel goes to this tiny little village called Bethlehem. And he, uh, God directs him to a man called Jesse. And God says that, I've chosen one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. So Jesse gets his sons and they all line up. And Samuel the prophet comes up and he sees the first son. He thinks, man. This guy is king material. He's really, really quite impressed by the guy. And Samuel thinks to himself, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And then look what God says in reply. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord God said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel goes down the line, you know, son number two, and then son number three, and then son number four, and so on. And none of those sons have apparently been chosen by God to be king. So Samuel says to Jesse, do you have, do you have any more sons? And Jesse's like, oh yeah, yeah, this other guy. Um, he's our youngest. He's just a boy, probably 13, 14. He's, he's out in the fields looking after the sheep. I mean, I don't know how you can forget that you've got a son, but perhaps you did. Anyway, so this guy, this youngest son is called David. And Samuel says, send him in, bring him here. So David is summoned, and under God's direction, Samuel appoints David as the future king. Now, I just want to make a quick comment on something here. Because you may not be the oldest in your family. You may not be the boldest in your family or the smartest, or the funniest, or the fastest. But you need to never forget that God is cheering for the underdog. David was just a boy. All his other more impressive brothers were passed over. And that's because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God's not impressed by our beauty, or our brains, or our brawn. He's looking for our character, our maturity, our humility, our heart. And I don't know about you, but I've thought about this a lot. If I was going to have a superpower, and I know you're thinking it would be ninja skills or the ability to fly, but it's not, because I find that the undies over the tights is just a bit awkward. If I was going to have a superpower, I would love it to be to see how God sees, to look beyond the obvious, to see people not at face value, but at heart value, to look beyond the age. Or their size, or their intelligence, and to see what's really going on on the inside. Well, anyway, that with God's help, that's the vision that Samuel shows. And uh, I don't know about you, but you can just imagine that whole scene when Samuel anoints David as the next king, and the fathers there, Jesse's there, and his brothers are just standing around going, "What is going on? Like, how did this end up happening?" But I imagine David was probably just as confused. I mean, he was only a teenager, but even in that youth of his age, we get, we see a glimpse of his maturity, of his humility by what he does next. Because when David is chosen as king of the nation of Israel, he does not go out to a mall and start trying on crowns. Okay, He doesn't go and get his business cards, take them to the printer and say, hey, you need this change from shepherd to future king. He doesn't get a whole bunch of t-shirts made with his face on them. He doesn't go out and start polishing up his chariot. He goes back to the fields. In fact, the next few verses, we find that he is with the sheep. So when that moment's over, when Samuel leaves, when the lights go out, when everyone goes back to their business, David goes back to the sheep because he's a shepherd, and he knows he needs to protect and provide for his sheep. And I think that humility is just a glimpse as to why David is called a man after God's own heart. He had a responsibility And he was faithful to complete it. So David stays a shepherd for two more years. And then overnight, he becomes this massive sensation for facing down and killing a giant. And he becomes super popular with all the people. And he finds favor with the king, King Saul. In fact, so favorable that he marries the king's daughter and he becomes best friends with the king's son. And for seven years, things are great. But then Saul feels threatened. He feels jealous of David's popularity. And Saul, the king, tries to kill David. He puts a bounty on his head. So for the next eight years, for most of his 20s, David is on the run. He's a fugitive hiding out in the Judean wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever had a wilderness experience, then you know that there are some tough lessons to be learned in that time. And for David, that was certainly true. And like I said, I'm just giving you a quick flyover. A bit of an arc of his life we will drill down into those in the coming weeks. But perhaps the greatest lesson that David learned during his wilderness experience was to trust God's timing. Because during that time, he had a number of opportunities to take the throne by force. So flick over to 1 Samuel chapter. Uh, 26. And we're going to pick up the story here. So, where we're at now is that Saul, King Saul, and his army is pursuing David through the desert. And Saul has 3,000 of his elite troops, his top soldiers. And David has about 600 men, just kind of like ragtag thrown together. So, David is outnumbered five to one. Like, the odds aren't that great for him. So, David goes on a bit of a reconnaissance mission to try and see where Saul is at. And he tracks Saul down, sees that Saul has made camp, and uh, Saul is at the center of this camp, and he's encircled by his soldiers. He's literally got 3,000 men surrounding him. And it's recorded that when David gets there, Saul and all his soldiers are asleep. And Saul's right in the middle. He's got his bodyguard, and he's got his spear right beside him, obviously in case of attack. So David... And one of David's mighty men, a guy called Abishai, they creep into Saul's camp. And they get right up alongside the sleeping king, King Saul. And this is what happens. 1 Samuel 26, verse 8. God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time, Abishai whispered to David. Obviously, because they wouldn't yell. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike twice. This is a tense moment. In other words, Abishai is saying, look, I've got this. I have got this. One strike is all I need. I will put that spear through his heart. The last face that he will see on this earth is yours, David. And when that happens, the army will rise up, they will wake up, and they will declare you as king. Boom! Boom! This is what David says in that moment. No, David said, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday or he will die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed. But take his spear and that jug of water beside his head and then let's get out of here. And I think that shows the depth of David's character. David was unwilling to violate the plans of the Lord to secure the promises of the Lord. David could have pushed that button. He could have helped himself, but he knew he was called to help others. And so instead, David and Abishai, they grab the spear, they grab the water jug, and they sneak out of the camp, and you read the rest of the story, they go to the top of the hill and they call out the saw and they say, wake up, are you missing something? And Saul wakes up, he looks around, he realizes his spear and his water jug is gone. He realizes that he could have been killed. And then David says this, I refused to kill you even when the Lord placed you in my power, for you are the Lord's anointed one. David refused to replace what God had put in place. He knew that God had a bigger plan. He had to trust God's timing, that in God's will and his way, it would be sorted out. Well, eventually Saul is killed in battle. Read a few chapters on, and, and again, insight into David's character. David is deeply saddened by this. He doesn't go out and have a party because the crown could now be his. David is deeply sad. In fact, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 1 David mourns the death of Saul. He tears his clothes, he weeps, he fasts, he composes a funeral song as a tribute to Saul, as a tribute to the guy who tried to kill him multiple times. And so, what often happens after the death of a powerful person is that things get messy. And there is increasing civil unrest. And for seven years, the supporters of David fight against the supporters of Saul. There is a real power struggle, a civil war. And then eventually, finally, the tribes of the nation of Israel gather together. We pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 5. These tribes gather together, and the leaders of the tribes they acknowledge David as the rightful king, as the chosen king chosen by God. And so this is is it. This is the moment that David has been literally waiting for. For eight years, he was a fugitive on the run. And then for another seven years, he was involved in a bloody civil war. And there's just been difficulty after challenge, after tough time. He was promised the throne when he was a teenager, like more than 20 years ago. And finally, as a 37-year-old man, he is crowned king. And in that moment, when David is given the crown, he shows his true greatness. He applies the hard lessons that he learnt in the wilderness. And he he reveals the maturity that he did not have when he was 15. He did not have when he was 20, even when he was 30. So those leaders, when they gather together, when they acknowledge David as king, they give him the power. They give him the authority. They, they give him the keys to the palace. They give him the crown on his head. He is the most powerful person in the room. And then this is what David does. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3. So King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king. Israel. Now, I probably just need to clarify what a covenant is. Covenant is like an ancient agreement, sort of like our modern day contract, you know. And uh, in this covenant, parties would make promises to each other that under certain conditions they would do certain things. So it's a contract. But what's unusual is that David did not need to make a covenant, it was unnecessary for him to make promises. To the people, he was the king. He was wearing the crown. He held the power. His word was law. He was the most powerful person in the nation. In fact, what was expected was he could have used his power to claim revenge on all those people who opposed him, all those people who ignored him for the last 15 years. But instead, he makes a covenant with these people. Have you wondered why? ever considered why he might do that? Well, there's a clue in the text, three words. David made a covenant before the Lord. You know, in that moment, when David recognized, when David was given the crown, he recognized that he would be a king, but a king under authority. He submitted himself to God's rule, and he acknowledged that kings should be accountable. That David was going to be accountable to God for the way that he served the people he would rule. What I found fascinating about that is that David revealed that real power was not to be used for helping himself, but for helping others. A thousand years after David demonstrated his greatness, someone else demonstrated their greatness. Jesus had been traveling and teaching, and he ends up in the city of Jerusalem having a meal with his followers, and Jesus knew that the next few hours would be his most toughest trial on earth. He was going to be arrested, he was going to be falsely accused, he was going to be executed as a criminal. And just like David, Jesus had been chosen by God, but he'd also been ignored by the people that he'd been called to help. But that didn't deter Jesus from his mission. This is the story we read in John chapter 13. Jesus knew that the Father, that's God, had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And When you think about it, Jesus had the power without the crown. Jesus had the authority without the title. God had put all things under Jesus' control. Jesus was the most powerful person in the room. And, And look what he does next. So he, Jesus, got up, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I Just imagine the look on his followers' faces. And This is a guy that I've dedicated three years of their life to. They revered him, they have the deepest respect for him, and here he is kneeling on the ground doing one of the lowliest tasks that only a servant, only a slave should be doing. And the lesson that Jesus is teaching is so obvious that he doesn't need to say anything, but probably just so that I get it, Jesus does say something, which I'm thankful for. He says this, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do As I have done for you. You know, in other words, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to live like I live, if you want to love like I love, then in those moments when you get the manager's office, when you get the director's chair, when you get the supervisor's vest, when you get the captain's badge, when you get given the crown, the power, the privilege, the authority, when you get all of that, look. For some feet to wash. Because I think that all of us at, at some level, at some capacity, we have been given authority and influence. Perhaps you're a boss, perhaps you're a manager, an owner, a trustee, perhaps you're a worker, senior citizen, volunteer, perhaps you're a coach or a captain, a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, an auntie, an uncle, whatever. Whatever crown you are wearing, you have power and influence. And perhaps what, what most reveals our character is how we handle power and authority and influence. What we do when we realize that we are the most powerful person in the room, the most powerful person in the boardroom, or in the storeroom, or in the smoko room, or in the classroom, or in the locker room, or in the family room, or in the bedroom, whatever room you're in, when you realize you are the most powerful person in that room, and how you handle that, says much about your maturity and your humility. And I think we would do well to embrace the greatness that David demonstrated. I think we would do well to follow the example of, of Jesus. When we are the most powerful person in the room, we're called to choose to help others rather than ourselves. And look, like, if you're a Christian here this morning, this is not some sort of like feel good inspirational goal. This is actually a commitment that you have made. If you've made a decision to live in love like Jesus, then this literally changes everything. You imagine the impact on our society if we all lived like this. Well, 2,000 years ago, history tells us that selflessness changed the world. And I truly believe that can do it again. So with the power, with the authority, with the influence that we have, may we seek to help others rather than ourselves.